kink is always relational. It's only sometimes sexual. Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Justin Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. In some ways, everyone is a little bit kinky. I mean, if you look at people's sexual fantasies, almost everybody has had a kinky fantasy at some point in their lives, regardless of whether it's something they've actually done in real life. A lot of people have experience with kink in the bedroom as well. For example, nationally representative U.S. surveys find that at least one-third of adults have engaged in an act of BDSM. Despite how common kink and BDSM are, there are a ton of myths and misconceptions out there about them. Today's episode is therefore going to be all about demystifying kink. Some of the topics we'll explore include whether BDSM is always about sex, diversity in kink practices, including some of the more fun and playful forms it can take, as well as what to do when people perceive a conflict between their sexual turn-ons and their political values. We'll also explore why BDSM and kink are appealing to so many people. I am joined by Stephanie Gerlich, award-winning author of The Leather Couch, Clinical Practice with Kinky Clients. Stephanie recently published a sequel to this book called Kink-Affirming Practice, Culturally Competent Therapy from the Leather Chair. Stephanie is a certified sex therapist, a board-certified diplomate of sexology, and an expert voice in the popular media. Stephanie is also a member of the teaching faculty at the University of Michigan Sexual Health Certificate Program. This is going to be an amazing conversation. Stick around, and we're going to jump in right after the break. Women are often left in the dark when it comes to sexual health and wellness, and this is especially true when they reach their 40s and beyond. It's time to change that. The Scarlet Society is here to help you explore what it is that brings you pleasure, give you the tools you need to take charge of your sexual health, and cultivate the relationships you deserve. Over at scarletsociety.com, you'll find a wealth of informational and educational articles, podcasts, and videos. You'll also discover community support and social networking, as well as curated product selections to level up your intimate life. It's your new home for trusted resources aimed at helping women navigate sex and love after age 40. Check the show notes for the link or visit scarletsociety.com to learn more and liberate your sexuality. Healthcare training programs usually include some information about gender and sexuality, but few of them give you adequate training if your goal is to become a sex therapist or educator. This is where the Modern Sex Therapy Institutes can help. MSTI offers a PhD program in clinical sexology, as well as multiple certification programs in sex therapy and sex education for mental health and medical professionals. All trainings can be completed 100% online. Whether you're looking for a certification or simply an opportunity to build and expand your knowledge base, MSTI can help. For more information on their programs and offerings, find the link in the show notes or visit modernsextherapyinstitutes.com. Hi, Stephanie, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It's nice to see you again, Justin. Thanks for joining me. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. So I'd like to begin our conversation by asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into this area. So specifically, what drew you to the world of sex therapy and specifically therapy dealing with kinky clients? So I'm a social worker by degree, by profession. 
And even before I finished school, while I was in college, I was working as a first response advocate for sexual assault survivors, including pediatric sexual assault survivors. After graduation, I worked a lot with people with sexual trauma, commercial sex workers who are not necessarily traumatized people, but they were a population I worked with, um, human trafficking survivors. So Detroit is, you know, a border town and, and we do have a human trafficking situation in our area. And a lot of young people who were dealing with inappropriate or, or difficult sexual behaviors. So most of my career has been on the, the difficult, ugly side of human sexuality. I've worked with a lot of people who had their bodies um, and their desires weaponized against them. And at a certain point, I was in a relationship with the man who's now my partner, and I told this hilarious story about the panic buttons at my then agency's office. And he was like, wait, what do you mean panic buttons? And I'm like, well, we work with survivors. Of course we have panic buttons. And he was very against this idea and strongly encouraged me to perhaps find a safer line of work. But I'd only ever worked in sexual health and sexual trauma. And I thought it might be really lovely to look at the other side of the coin and work on the more positive sides of sexuality. So I went to University of Michigan. I did my sex therapy certification. And, you know, as a part of becoming a sex therapist, I know you're aware, we, we have to go through this process called a SAR, right? A sexual attitudes reassessment. And that experience was fascinating for me as a social worker because I'm in a group of people who are already mental health professionals or medical providers and who have self-selected into wanting to do sex therapy. So, you know, there's an assumption that maybe they're bringing a certain degree of curiosity or, or enthusiasm to the table. And we saw, you know, interviews with people who had profound disabilities that were finding ways to, to reclaim their sexuality. And we saw videos of elderly couples that were being intimate and touching and caressing, even though they might not be capable of penetrative sex anymore. And the responses from my cohort were, oh, that's wonderful. Oh, that's so brave. Oh, that's so lovely. I hope that's us when we are old. And then we got to the section on BDSM and kink and the tenor of the room changed and it became very giggly and very whispery <laughs> and a lot less sort of romantic and respectful and a little bit more sort of prurient, let's watch the train wreck happen. I'm a social worker. That sort of situation doesn't sit well with me. And that moment really kind of launched the trajectory of the second half of my career because it became really clear that even in a community full of providers who are incredibly well-informed about sexuality and sexual health and relationships, there was still a huge knowledge gap when it came to power exchange relationships and um, sensory play and fetishes, there was a need for somebody that could help advocate for and talk about those populations. And ever since that experience, that has been what I've done. Thank you for sharing that. And I think it leads nicely into my next question because I want to start talking about kink in more detail. And it's not just a lot of therapists in training, but people in the general public more broadly who have these misconceptions about what kink is and maybe some judgments or preconceived ideas about it. And so I think it's really important to demystify kink for a lot of folks. So before we get into that, though, let me just first ask the general question of 
what does kink mean to you? Because it's one of those terms that just like the term sex means different things to different people. So when you're talking about kink, how do you see it? So I think of kink as an umbrella term for anything that falls outside of the social norms of a given place and a given time. Things that are kinky in the United States are incredibly mainstream in other parts of the world. And things that are shocking and scandalous in other parts of the world are just the everyday way that we move through our relationships, our family lives, and our sexuality. So I think one of the most important things to kind of understand from the beginning is that there is no one sort of set of behaviors that are kinky. Kink is going to look different for every person, depending upon how they were raised, where they were raised, and when they're living. I love that answer because you're so right that kink is culturally relative and it's highly individual specific. You know, just as you were saying that what is considered kinky in one culture might be considered vanilla or routine in the next, you know, it's the same way across individuals within a given culture that, you know, some of the things that one person might see as kinky might be very vanilla to another person. So it is all in the eye of the beholder in a lot of ways. But when we talk about kink and BDSM, you know, one of the big questions that I hear from people is where do these interests come from in the first place? And I've devoted a few previous podcast episodes to this. And in speaking with folks like Richard Sprott and Jim Faust, we've learned that different people are drawn to kink for very different reasons. You know, for some, it might be a learned behavior. For others, it might be connected to a previous trauma. For yet others, it might be a way of seeking balance in their life or seeking a change in headspace. So, it's complex. But in your book, you talk about how obsessing over this why question, that origin question, can be problematic. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? I think that the research shows that there is no one answer. And I think that spending a lot of time, stress, research dollars, you know, depending upon who you are, trying to figure out the single point of origin for a a vast spectrum of behaviors and relationship styles is an effort in futility. But what I think is important is understanding how kink behaviors manifest in the lives of people, our clients, our, our colleagues, our neighbors, and looking at what that does for them, what value and pleasure and closeness does it bring to their lives. And I think looking at the hows of kink, how does this play out? How does this make your relationship stronger? How does this offer you comfort and validation is much more important than trying to pin down, well, why? Why this? You know, I'm I'm trained as a cognitive behavioralist and at the end of the day, (laughs) We want to understand the behavior and we want to address the behavior. It's far less important where that behavior comes from for me. I know that I have clients for whom, you know, the origin story is very important for them. That knowing the why behind their kinky natures is part of what brings them validation. And and, and that's perfectly fair. But I think from a clinical perspective, when we're talking about a community as opposed to an individual, I, I think we get bogged down in trying to figure out the origins and really we want to look at the outcomes. 
Yeah, I think that's a great answer. And something else that you discuss in the book is sort of how when we have this hyper-focus on what is the origin that sort of perpetuates the idea that this is an interest that is just totally outside the norm to begin with and that there's a problem and so we have to find the root cause of that problem in some way. So I think you're right that, you know, yes, there is some value in trying to understand origins of kink and that value might be different for different people, but it's not always the most important question. And including in a therapeutic context, it might not even matter all that much depending on the client that you're working with. So let's talk about some common misconceptions about kink. And one of the most common ones is that kink is all about sex. However, you cite an interesting study in your book that finds that the more involved people become in the kink scene, the less sexual the kink becomes. And I imagine that this idea would be surprising to a lot of people, given that there is this tendency to conflate kink and sex and assume that they always go together. So can you tell us a little bit more about this and more generally, what is the connection between kink and sex? So one of the sort of phrases that I find myself saying a lot um, in classes and in interviews is the idea that kink is always relational. It's only sometimes sexual. And I think when people look at kink as a relational practice, as a way of creating bonds, structuring relationships, framing up moments and experiences, those tasks and those outcomes can exist completely separate from sexual behavior. There are, of course, kinky people that have sex as a part of kink. I mean, that's it would be shocking otherwise. But the idea that kink is something that happens as a form only of erotic play or only as a prelude to sexual intercourse, I really think does a disservice to the depth and meaning found in kink dynamics, especially long-established dynamics. I have worked with clients who are in 24-7 power exchange relationships and who also identify as not only asexual, but sex-repulsed. And the power exchange, you know, what we would call a kinky dynamic, a, a dominant, submissive, total exchange relationship, exists regardless of what they do with their genitals or with their bodies. It is a way of creating an intimate, deep, close connection. And I think that's equally true um, for people that do, you know, one-off scenes with somebody at a club, at a party, a friend. That too, the negotiations process, the, the trust and the sensory process present in any sort of scene creates a bond between those people. You know, Brad Sager and the Science of BDSM team have shown this. They've demonstrated that we respond physiologically to kink play, even when we're not necessarily in a long-term relationship with the person we're playing with, even if we don't necessarily know them before the scene. This is a way to build closer, deeper relationships. And some of those relationships become sexual. 
I love that framing that kink is always relational and sometimes sexual. And I'm glad you brought up asexuality because there are people who are asexual who are into kink. And if you look at asexual person's fantasies, one of the things we see is that they fantasize about BDSM and kink at about the same rate as allosexual people or people who do have desire for partnered sex. So that in and of itself is evidence that kink isn't always about sex. Yes, Sometimes it is, but I think we need to rethink this tendency to conflate kink with sex and to assume that there's always a sexual component to it. Now, another misconception about kink is that it's inherently abusive or exploitative and that whoever is in the dominant position has all of the power. And I've heard from a lot of people with kinky interests who are uncomfortable with them because they're viewing it through that lens. So, for example, I know some women who have an interest in submission or masochism, or maybe they have forced sex fantasies, and they feel deeply conflicted about this because they identify as feminists, and they see their sexual interests as either bowing to the patriarchy or making them a bad feminist. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this, and what do you say to a client who comes in and sees this conflict between their sexual desires, their interest in kink, and their social or political values outside of the bedroom or dungeon? I have had these conversations not only with clients, but also with colleagues. I consider myself to be a militant feminist. I used to say radical, but, you know, the TERFs have have kind of corrupted radical. Um, But I, I am very passionate about my feminism and my feminist politics. And what I always come back to is the fact that I cannot think of anything more feminist than a relationship framework that not only allows for, but demands communication, boundary setting, negotiation, debriefing, and absolute respect for limits. And I don't think there's anything more feminist than a woman or frankly, any human being able to say exactly what they want, exactly what they don't want, and to know without question that that will be respected. That to me seems like the framework that we as feminists have been moving towards and advocating for since the beginning of time. Where I think things become problematic is when people start judging what others want. If what it means to be a feminist is for me to say, I support your right to ask for what you want, to have those needs met, and to never have your boundaries violated, then I don't get to say, but now I'm going to judge you for what you need. And now I'm going to criticize what you want. Because first of all, that becomes its own boundary violation. And second of all, People want what they want and they need what they need. And we can't always control that without getting, you know, back into the arguments around why. The simple fact is, is that no matter what our sexual or relational or erotic orientation is, it is what it is. And very rarely can those be modified or truly altered. And so the idea that we would waste time and energy criticizing one another instead of celebrating the space that has been created for accountability, for transparency, for aftercare, for negotiation, and for autonomy, I think is the most important piece there. When it comes to people that feel guilt and shame for wanting to be submissive or for desiring domination, 
there's kind of the cliche in the kink community that, no, the dom doesn't have the power. Really, the sub has all the power because they can say no at any time. And a lot of times people in power exchange relationships don't like that either, right? <laughs> the sub doesn't want the power. That's why they are practicing power exchange. But Dossie Easton and Janet Hardy wrote something that has always really resonated with me, and they talk about power with. And they talk about the fact that power exchange is just that. And you cannot surrender something that you don't already have. So if somebody is taking away your power, if it's not a choice, then that's not kink and it's not power exchange. You have to have the agency and the autonomy to say, I am giving myself over to you. I am ceding my power to you. You can only do that when you have it to give. And so without getting into who has more power in a given dynamic, I think we have to acknowledge that both parties have to start from a place of power and autonomy in order for power exchange to happen. Otherwise, it's just abuse. I think that's a great and very helpful way to think about all of this. And hopefully that gives a lot of people something here to think about because we see so many of us judging our own sexual desires, whether they are kinky or whether they are about multi-partner sex or whatever, you know, people tend to feel a lot of shame and guilt because they've been taught that sex is this narrow thing. And when they perceive themselves as wanting something that is outside of that, outside of what is considered culturally relative for that particular individual at that particular place, at that particular point in time, it becomes all too easy to feel that shame, that guilt, that embarrassment. And that is ultimately what prompts a lot of people to come see therapists like you. So, we definitely need to do more in terms of tackling that sexual shame. So another common misconception about kink is this idea that kink is kind of this inherently dark and brooding and really serious activity that always takes place in a dungeon. And, you know, that's the way it's often portrayed in the popular media. So I understand why people might kind of have that association. But kink can also be lighthearted and fun and even silly, right? So can you tell us a little bit about sort of the spectrum of kink and some of the more playful forms that it can take? So I love that you're asking this because I have been researching ethical kink content and trying to find more resources in that area. And I stumbled across, there's a new platform called Adult Time. I have no connection to them. This is not branded in any way, but I've been looking at their content because I've been doing my own research. And I stumbled across a series that they do called Bubblegum Dungeon, <laughs> which is what came to mind when you asked the question, because it is all about sort of like pink and sparkles and rainbows and silliness and this playful, lighthearted bondage play and sensory play. And I think that, you know, we kind of have this mental trope that comes sort of partly from old guard leather, right? Like the caps and the chaps and the like really buff guys, and partly from pop culture and Madonna and Fifty Shades and all of that that creates a hypersexual and really kind of dark, black, red, leather, metal sort of vibe. And most of the kinksters that I have worked with, that I've come in contact with, that I am friends with, that's not their life. They don't have dungeons in their homes, but they might have restraints under their beds. They might not wear this heavy collar or do these very specific positions every day, but they have an order to their lives and their relationships. And it might be very subtle. It might take the form of waiting until your partner takes their first bite before you pick up your fork. 
It's a very, very subtle form of surrender. It can be super fun and playful. The the caregiver little community is just adorable with pink and pastels and sparkles and coloring books and sippy cups and stuffies. And I love everything about them because they take their power exchange and their sensory exchange and they make it something that speaks to their personalities in everyday life. You don't have to have this dark brooding sort of the line from the book that made me cringe the most, that 50 shades of fucked up sort of persona in order to enjoy dominating somebody or want to receive a spanking or really, really like being tied up. Your ropes don't have to be black for you to do that. They can be rainbows and sparkles. It's about creating a dynamic that works for you and that resonates with you. And frankly, everything about sexuality and intimacy is so sensory that if we're trying to like fit ourselves into this dark goth sort of vibe in order to feel kinky, and that's not what brings us pleasure and happiness, then that's not going to work for you as an effective kink. It's way better to lean into the playful, cheerful, happy, cute things and then kinkify them than to think that you have to be this brooding leather-clad beast in order to be truly, really kinky. Yeah, so there are a lot of ways to be kinky, and you can think of there as being multiple spectrums here, you know, spectrums in terms of the color palette, in terms of the level of playfulness, in terms of the specific tools and other things that they might use. So much variability. And as you were talking about, you know, some of these more playful forms of kink, something else that comes to mind for me is pup play. You know, that's where one person will kind of dress up and take the role of a dog, essentially and they'll have an owner or handler. And, you know, what we see in research on people who are into pup play is that one of the big motivations for it is that it's really just a form of play. You know, it's a form of escape. And I think that's another big element of this is that it's sort of getting out of your typical headspace and releasing all of the anxiety, insecurity, everything else that's already going on in your head and just sort of being in the moment and having fun with it. And so, as you said, this can look like so many different things. One other misconception I want to address is the concept of fetishization in the kink community. There are a number of kinky interests that people might look at as being inherently objectifying or fetishizing, such as when someone has a kink interest that centers around a specific race, age, or disability. And there are some in the kink community who have described experiences with fetishization that are distressing. And I've read some of this in your books and your work about this because you've interviewed and worked with a number of kinky individuals. Yet there are others who find certain types of fetishization to be empowering or arousing. So I think the interesting question here becomes, what counts as fetishization and when does this cross a line? So I know it's a complex question, but what are your thoughts on this? I think that is a question that would take a panel of experts seven years to truly pin down. But, you know, the objective definition of a fetish is somebody that has a sexual desire for something that is not typically sexualized, whether that's an object or a body part. Or, you know, they need that not only to experience desire, but to sustain arousal. 
And so on just the most surface level, that comes back to our ideas of feeling shame about our erotic wiring, right? In the same way that somebody might feel guilty or shameful about wanting to dominate their partner, somebody might feel incredibly guilty or shameful if a specific skin tone turns them on in a way that nothing else does. I encourage my clients to be gentle with themselves. Because again, most, especially with fetishes, most of our erotic maps are not easily rerouted. And so rather than sitting in a place of guilt and shame and, you know, self-abnegation, we want to move towards a place where we can honor what we like, acknowledge potentially problematic areas. And that's true for anything. You know, even the super common sort of bedroom only, let's just play around with dominance and submission. If you safety play incorrectly, if you don't respect safe words, if that starts to carry over out of the bedroom when one partner doesn't want it to, you know, the most, to put it in a silly way, vanilla forms of kink can become problematic. So instead of looking at a specific fetish and saying, I'm a terrible person for having this, or you're a terrible person for desiring that, I think it's really important to look for spaces and people who affirm that. Right before the pandemic happened, I was at a sexology conference and somebody was wearing a shirt that said, I'm somebody's fetish. And I loved that because there are spaces in this community and, and within the spectrum of BDSM and kink for people to find the people that they click with. And I think it is totally okay for somebody to say, your fetish makes me uncomfortable. Your fetish makes me feel dehumanized or devalued, and I don't want to engage with it, and I would prefer that you take it elsewhere. I also think it's okay for somebody else to say, I hear what they're saying, but I like it. Come over here and play with me. And I think that instead of interrogating guilt or shame or should we enjoy what we enjoy, should we fetishize what we fetishize, the important thing is to be respectful of the boundaries of those around us. And if your fetish makes somebody else uncomfortable, then they are not your people and you need to leave them alone. Because there are lots of other people who will celebrate the fact that they are your fetish. And it's just a matter of finding those folks. I appreciate that very nuanced answer to that very complicated question. And you are so right that it's all about being respectful of other people's boundaries and the way that you're treating them. And if somebody has a hard line against something, you have to be respectful of that. Now, I know we've covered a number of myths and misconceptions about kink and BDSM today. Are there any other ones that we haven't addressed that you think are really important for listeners to know? So one that I hear a lot in my clinical practice when I consult with other clinicians is the misconception that dominant or sadistic people are inherently abusive and the the sort of corollary misconception that submissive or masochistic people are inherently broken or damaged or seeking some form of self-harm. None of that is validated by the research. There's been a lot of studies done on kink personalities, kink mental health, the people that enjoy all sorts of behaviors. And it's simply a fiction to say that dominant or top or sadistic people are 
antisocial or narcissistic. And it's equally fictional to say that their partners are traumatized or broken or self-harming. And there is so much nuance within there. I mean, that one statement could be another 30-minute conversation, but I don't want to let the moment pass without acknowledging that the people that think that kink is an expression of personality disorder or desire for self-harm need to do more reading. It's not found in the literature. And the people that enjoy especially sadistic, masochistic play are are valid in what they want. And nine times out of 10 are healthy, functional adults. Yep. And, you know, as you're talking about this, I'm thinking about how, you know, this is true at the broad level in terms of practitioners and people who are involved in the BDSM community. There are some people who are abusive individuals who co-opt the term BDSM or try and infiltrate the community as a means of covering for the abuse that they're carrying out. That does exist, and it's important to acknowledge in the interest of protecting people's health and safety. But by the same token, using these outliers to generalize to the broader community is problematic, right? Because for the vast majority of people in this community, we don't see those differences in mental health and all of those other sorts of things. So thank you for helping us to demystify kink because there are so many misconceptions out there. I'm so glad to have the chance. Thank you so much for your time, Stephanie. I really appreciate having you here. And thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. 